Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. In this week's episode of Making Media, I'm joined by Julian Treasure. Julian is an expert in communication and one of the most powerful speakers in the world. How do I know that? He has the sixth most watched TED Talk ever given, and all of his TED appearances combined have over 135 million views. When he speaks, people listen. And that's the crux of what he teaches. Speaking and listening are fundamental skills in our lives and careers, but very few people ever practice them. We don't teach them in schools. We don't teach them in businesses. Yet we rely on our voice and ears day in, day out to affect changes that we want to see. In our conversation, we first talk about the lost art of listening and speaking before getting tactical about how to improve both of those skills. We also discuss the long list of invisible reasons that we should spend more time thinking about sound. After our conversation, I debrief Julian's lessons and insights with Matt. Please enjoy this masterclass on communication. So Julian, I want to start with a provocative question. Are listening and speaking as important as they once were? We spend most of our time these days at work, especially writing and reading rather than kind of speaking and listening. Well, you're right about the preponderance of writing and reading, and it's got significantly more skewed that way, I think, with technology in the last 40 years, really. I mean, email came along, and then after a few years, I think you could probably summarize most people in the West's job description in two words, answer email, because that's what a huge number of people sit doing all day. The email becomes their inbox. It becomes their manager. It's quite tyrannical, really. So we have got very used to communicating with screens and fingers. Our digits and our eyes are captured. They're hostages for most of the day. You know, we're frantically looking at a screen at work. We've got something in our hand when we're in social environments. I don't know if you know the books that Sherry Turkle has written, another TED speaker. Her latest book is called Reclaiming Conversation, and the one before that is called Alone Together. She's an MIT professor who was a great proponent of technology, believing that the global village would bring us all closer together and forge connections and so forth. Sort of true, but actually what it's done at the same time is to change the way we relate to the world, to replace a small number of deep relationships with a very large number of extremely shallow ones. I mean, the word friend has been reinvented, hasn't it, by Facebook. This whole thing of being followed and having an impact in the world in terms of how many people are paying attention to you, there's a great deal of ego in this. So that's all wrapped up and it's all done through the eyes and it's all done through the fingers, largely. Now, we've seen a few changes in that over the last couple of years with things like Clubhouse coming along. I think 
LinkedIn are going to do something in audio in the not too distant future. So there are a few signs of listening and speaking reasserting themselves. And of course, podcasting is the glowing example of that, which has been hugely successful. And I should say also, radio has been massively successful in the last few years, despite media fragmentation, despite the plethora of ways in which you can consume content and the dominance of the eyes generally in our society, radio has shone. So there's something about speaking and listening, and I think we could unpack that a little bit. First of all, they're primal. We have been around as a species for something like 300,000 years, Homo sapiens I'm talking about, and our ancestors, whatever they were, different types of hominid for millions of years before that, maybe three million years. Now, in all that time, there was no writing until roughly 4,000 years ago. So writing has been a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of humanity's existence. For all the rest of that time, we've been communicating by speaking and listening. This is the most effective, the most direct, the most emotive and the most intimate way that we can communicate with one another. And that urge, that primal connection hasn't gone away. So it is rather extraordinary, given that, as you said at the beginning, we teach reading and writing in schools. We do not teach speaking and listening. So somehow there's been a flip since writing was invented. Now, I'm not denigrating writing. I mean, it's got many great things. Obviously, you can publish it. Some of the greatest social revolutions and trends in the world have been inspired by books. And religions, of course, rest largely on written works. So writing has got many wonderful things about it. But would you rather read a Shakespeare play or hear it being spoken or even see it being spoken? And obviously, seeing somebody who's speaking to you is the full package. I mean, that is broadband. You're seeing the tiny non-verbal communication things which go on all the time, the facial expressions, the gestures, the body language, pheromones, whatever it might be of your face-to-face, and you're hearing prosody or prosody. You're hearing the intonation, you're hearing the gaps between the words, you're hearing the pace, you're hearing the energy, you're hearing the emotion in the voice, which is all absent in writing, or largely absent. You have to imagine it. And how many times have we all sent a text or an email which has been completely misconstrued by the person at the other end. That's not what I meant. Well, it's easy to misconstrue text, much easier than it is to misconstrue vocal communication. So I think never has it been more important that we reclaim this primal and most important of all communication routes. And I get quite disturbed by research that I see, which says things like that young people would rather send a text than talk to somebody. And now I can understand that in some situations, you know, asking somebody out, the fear of rejection face-to-face would be, for, you know, potentially humiliating. There's a sort of arm's lengthness about texting, isn't there? And there's a lot of stuff you can do with text that you wouldn't necessarily want to do in speech. So I do recognize there are other media, but it's just this kind of overwhelming tendency to do it in written form as opposed to sound. 
that I think is quite dangerous because what we lose contact with is listening. And that is crucial. When you look at the world, particularly politically at the moment, but in every other way really as well, the polarization that's going on is extraordinary. We're on a slippery slope, which starts with depersonalizing people and moves down to making them enemies. Eventually, of course, you get to the the ISIS view of the world, which is disagree with me and I'll kill you. It becomes unacceptable for people to hold different views. And at the root of this, we've got all this confusion between facts and opinions, which have somehow become conflated. And we have the human tendency. It's one of two that I talk about in my trainings, which really undermine our listening. The first one is looking good. We all like to look good course we do. But when that becomes the driving force behind communication, impacting on people, having them be impressed. So being bigger, better than we really are. There's a lot of not very useful stuff that goes along with looking good the whole time. And if there's one thing we like more than looking good, it's being right. And being right is behind so much of the world's problem at the moment particularly on technology, because that's made it much worse. Because the easiest way for me to be right is to make you wrong. The moment I do that, I set myself above you. I push you down and I'm in judgment and judgment is power. So I feel more powerful and more justified. And that is an absolute epidemic in the world right now. And it's got to the point where, as I said, people who hold different views are wrong and they have to be at the very least disparaged, if not punished. That is so dangerous at the moment. You get these packs of people destroying other people. You only have to look at the comments under YouTube or even national newspapers like the Times. If you go down to the comments, you just get lots of people just being absolutely so convinced they're right with an opinion, not a fact, but it's just an opinion and being rude to anybody who disagrees with him. I gave a talk some years ago in Athens in the, the home of democracy at TEDx Athens, and I called the talk Listening the Sound of Democracy, because democracy, civil society, relies on accepting other people's disagreement. So it's civilized disagreement, if you like. It's being able to say, okay, I don't agree with you. I can see why you think that, perhaps. So I'm not totally invalidating you as a human being. I don't agree. There are more of you than there are of me. This is a democracy. So we have to live it by your rules. Now, that ability, unfortunately, is fading in the world because people are getting more and more entrenched. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question. Yes, I think speaking and listening have never been more important because we're in danger of losing our listening and becoming a society just torn apart by entrenched opinions, by judgment of others, and by refusing to accept people who aren't like us, who don't agree with us. Yeah, it's fascinating. Why have we lost our listening or why are we losing our listening? And I think often when you hear about listening, you just think of the physical act of hearing someone speak. But I think what you refer to and what you talk about is much deeper than that. And you also said, you know, we don't teach listening or speaking in schools anymore. But what would the curriculum look like for 
good, effective listening that starts to heal a lot of the problems that you just mentioned. Well, there's a couple of really important things about listening, which perhaps people don't realize. First of all, it's not the same as hearing. Hearing is a capability. It's a physical capability. Listening is a skill. Now that's a different thing altogether. Hearing is a capability. Listening is a skill. And that means it's a skill that can be taught, mastered, and that's important in life. The other big thing about listening, which most people don't understand, leads to one of the most common errors in communication that I see over and over again. And that error is the assumption everybody listens like I do. They don't. Because we all listen through a set of filters. And these filters are things which develop as we grow from being born into a culture, which may be a familial or tribal or local or national or religious or any other cultural overlays which change the way we learn to listen. Language, we learn a language and languages are very, very different. So they change the way we listen. And then we pick up values, attitudes and beliefs along the way from our parents, teachers, role models, friends, whoever it may be. We pick some up, we discard other ones. And the ones you've picked up, Dom, on the way to this conversation are different from the ones I've picked up. So you're not listening the same way I do. And there may be similarities, but also situationally, at any given moment, we might have emotions going on. Just think how differently you listen when you've just had terrible news to how you listen if you've just had fantastic news. So emotions get in the way or certainly affect our listening. So do assumptions about what's going on in other people's heads, what's going on in this situation, expectations about what's going to happen, intentions when you're standing on a stage speaking to an audience, many people get that all wrong because it becomes all about them. The intention is to get lots of praise or to look good, again, going back to that. Whereas actually the biggest advice to any speaker on stage is it's not about you. It's about the gift you're giving to an audience. And if that's your intention, then everything will go far, far better. So. All of those things color our listening as well as our speaking. And that means everybody's listening is unique. It's as unique as your fingerprints, your voice print, your irises. And once we start to recognize that, that transforms communication entirely because you have to start asking a really important question. And that question is, what's the listening I'm speaking into? We're always speaking into a listening. Now, it's much easier to ask that question and answer it when you're face to face with people, whether that's one person or a room full of thousand people, whatever it may be, you can ask yourself, what's the listening I'm speaking into? And you can feel it. I mean, right now I can see you. So, you know, I'm getting a sense of the listening I'm speaking into. If you were lying back in your chair, looking at the ceiling and yawning, I would have a different sense, (laughs) but he's not doing that, ladies and gentlemen. Thank goodness. So you can tell with an audience, there's a feeling of how engaged they are. And you can even Mm -hmm. tell where there are little craters of less commitment and maybe start talking to them. But as long as you're alive to that, speaking into the right listening is how you hit the bullseye instead of missing the target altogether. 
And this assumption that everybody listens like I do, you speak the same way all the time, that's just not yeah. very effective at all. Interestingly, the TED Talk on speaking has been seen by five times as many people as the TED Talk on listening. And I think that is very Sym symptomatic. Yeah, it's the way that we treat these things in society. We're much more into the eyes than the ears. And when you get to the ears, we're much more into sending than receiving. It's more about how do I make myself heard? Well, the answer to that, ladies and gentlemen, is listen. Because listening and speaking are in a circular relationship. They affect one another all the time. And if you want people to listen to you, then the best way to do that is to listen to them. Because you'll be able to spot the listening far better. The things you say will be more appropriate, relevant and interesting to them. And you might even learn something. Are there any questions? Or, you know, in business, a lot of the time, you're trying to be heard by someone you might not know particularly well. So are there any ways or questions to draw out how the other person is listening so then you can start to craft the message in a way which gets through to them in a more persuasive manner? Well, absolutely. There are contextual things where you can say to somebody, so what's the plan at the moment? What are you setting out to achieve? You know, what's the big picture? What are your goals? People love talking about themselves generally. So when yeah. you start to ask general questions like that, you start to see what is it they're trying to achieve? What are the obstacles that are in their way? How can you help? How can you make a contribution to that? Have you got anything to say about these things? And specifically, you know, in this conversation, in this meeting, what would you like us to achieve in this meeting? And then you're actually starting to draw out of them. You're not making assumptions. You're not doing the, the ultimate sin of selling, which is heavy pressure patter onto somebody who's not at all interested about what you're talking about. It's asking to understand their problems, understand their challenges. And how can you then contribute in this conversation or generally to it? Many times in my life, I've had that conversation with somebody. I've said, well, look, I totally understand that. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do to help you in this. So we then part on good terms. I haven't wasted my time or that person's time. So it's important to know your limitations in this. Most of the time, there'll be something. So it's asking open-ended questions, not the ones that can be answered yes or no, but the why, what, how, when, which, where, who, those kind of questions. It's listening to the answer carefully. It's giving. There's an exercise I've talked about in my TED Talk on listening, which is called rasa, R-A-S-A. And rasa is the Sanskrit word for juice, actually. But in this context, it's an acronym that stands for receive, appreciate, summarize, ask. And that's a great way to think of a conversation. Receive is very important in listening. It's actually looking at the person who's speaking because in the West, the dance of the eyes is very much the person speaking will be looking around the room and just checking back from time to time to see if you're listening. If you're listening, if you're not in direct eye contact, it doesn't give a good signal. Particularly, you know, your body language is trying to head for the door or your feet are pointing for the door. You know, these are things that people in the FBI and so forth, that lie detectors are very good at spotting these kind of little body language giveaways, little tells that you don't want to be there. So leaning forward, being attentive, looking at the person that's received. Appreciate the little noises we make in conversation and 
head bobs, which you're doing a lot of. So you're with me. You're nodding. I'm ticking the box. Yeah. yeah. It's noises like, mm, oh, really? Which we don't do very much on the radio or podcasting because it gets in the way. But yeah. in normal conversation, that's what we do. And then the S is summarize. And that is so important. I want to form a society for the preservation of the word so, which is being abused royally left, right and centre in the modern world, sadly. The word is really important, so, because you can summarise and because you can close doors behind you in a long corridor of a conversation or a sales pitch or whatever it might be. So what we've just agreed is this. Do you agree with that? Yep. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. Or so what I understood you to say, checking in like this, so what I understood you to say is this, did I get it? That's really important too. Or in a meeting, so we've all agreed this, now the next item on the agenda. If you don't have a so person in the meeting, it can be very circular and very long. And we want yeah. the definition of meetings, places where you take minutes and waste hours. <laughs> if you don't have somebody like summarizing, it's very important, that word, so. It means, therefore, it's a summarizing word, and it's a wonderful, powerful word to use in conversation. And Is that then, because it tells the other person that you have been listening to them, and so then they feel absolutely. more energized to carry on? In any conversation, particularly in a conflict conversation, there are two very important stages in active listening or in what I call conscious listening. The first is reflection. And that's where you say, so let me just see if I got this right, Dom. What you just said was this. Did I get that right? So that's reflection. The second and much more important stage is validation. And that means me saying, I can understand why you said that. I totally understand your point of view. I may completely disagree with it, but I see why you would believe that. Now, that is very different from me saying, well, that's complete rubbish, which is total invalidation. And immediately your defenses will go up and you'll become hostile. You're under attack. You're being disregarded or disbelieved or whatever it might be. Whereas if I say, I completely understand why you say that, I don't agree with you, but I totally get it. Then we're in a position where we can maybe come to some sort of synthesis and I can say, well, actually, my point of view is this, and I hope you can see why I think this. Now, how can we put these two things together and work together on whatever's in front of us? So that is the approach we need in a democracy, and it's the one that's sadly missing. The whole validation thing has disappeared, and we're now a society of invalidators. It's become an absolute epidemic of it. So just going back to Rasa, the last A of Rasa is you've got receive, appreciate, summarize, the last day is ask, asking those questions, which you can also do to start with, of course. The other answer to your question about talking to somebody who may be intimidating or difficult, or we don't know what they're about or anything like that, particularly if it's somebody who is difficult to talk to. And that's one of the most common questions I get. Hey, now how do I get somebody to listen to me when they're really impatient or difficult, or they're my boss, or they disregard me or whatever it may be? I'm a great believer in making contracts with people as opposed to, can I just say this to you? Or I need to say this to you, or, you know, that's yeah. dumping on somebody and it's kidnapping them. It's seizing their time. Instead of that, Dom, I have something really important that I'd like to say to you. Do you have five minutes now when I could say it to you? 
No? Okay, when would be a good time that you could give me five minutes really to listen to me? Then once you give me that contract, I have a right to complain slightly. Dom, you did say you were going to listen. So please, could you not interrupt? Just give me the five minutes. Do you see? So there's a contract there that we're, again, we're in alignment. You've given me that time. I'm going to take that time and say what I need to say. So it's a much more powerful place to be than simply me trying to seize a bit of your time without asking. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And this circular motion you talk about listening and then speaking comes after listening a lot of the time. So then what does the difference between an average or an okay speaker look like versus an excellent one? What are the hallmarks of great speakers and how can we begin to train that skill? First of all, with public speaking, it's a skill. What I teach broadly is the same routine, the same three things that an Olympic athlete would concern themselves with in order to perform well. And that is practice. There are lots of ways of doing that. You can join Toastmasters, for example, Toastmasters International. There's a chapter of Toastmasters, I can guarantee, very close to everybody listening to this because they're global. A bunch of people have come together and speak in public to each other and critique each other. The common goal is to become better speakers. So it's a nice, safe place to practice the skill. Mm-hmm. Or form a buddy group, get together with a few of your friends and say, look, guys, speaking in public, really important thing these days. Why don't we just have a twice a month, come around to my place or we rotate, have a couple of drinks or something, and then we all prepare a five minute speech and stand up and give it and we all critique each other. So there are ways of practicing with other people. Of course, it's very, very easy now to video yourself. And that's probably the most potent thing I can suggest to anybody. I can pretty much guarantee you'll be going, oh my goodness, I didn't know I did that. Because we can't see our own game, it's important, you know, your video then becomes your private coach. Get a coach, maybe. There are plenty of voice coaches, presentation coaches, platform coaches, courses, you know, all sorts of things. Do you know that one of the most amazing things to me, Dom, is, I mean, I go around the world giving speeches and talking to organizations about these very important skills and how profitable it is to become good at listening and good at speaking. You know, I might have an audience of a thousand CEOs and I say to them, how many of you use your voice in your work? How many of you speak in public as part of your work and a forest of hands go up? They all do. Okay. How many of you have had formal vocal training? About six. What? What's going on? This is the instrument we all play. If you want to be a maestro, then work at it. You can get a coach, you can coach yourself, you can do the things I've just suggested. It is important. So that's the first thing is to practice the skill to become just good at it. Then the second stage is prepare. So you've got a thing to do, a talk at an event, in a hall, whatever it might be to your team, whatever it is, prepare. So prepare the content, ask what's the listening I'm going to be speaking into, think about the people, think about the message, what do you want to achieve, what's your intention for you, what's your intention for them, where do you want it to be at the end, where have you all gone from the beginning to the end of this talk, there's a journey there, and think about the content very carefully. There's a great book I recommend to anybody who's using slides, which I do a great deal, called Presentation Zen by a guy called Gar Reynolds, also a TED speaker, and a really very, very good book about not using bullet points. 
and not creating what he calls slideuments, which yep. is, you know, when people say, can you send your slides so I can distribute them to people in advance? No, sorry, my slides are just pictures. They won't make, yeah, they won't make sense. <laughs> and then the third stage is deliver. So you go on stage and you're practiced and you're prepared and you can then deliver. Speaking into the listening with various other things. I mean, your posture is really important. Breathing is really important. Understanding what I call the vocal toolbox and becoming a master of these things of pace and pitch and power, volume, silence. I mean, all these things, it takes practice, but anybody can master these things. Anybody can become much more skilled. And assuming that you can just do this is very similar to walking on stage at the Albert Hall where there's a piano and assuming you can play rap madden off piano concerto I mean, no you can't <laughs> not without practice so yeah that's what it takes it strikes me that listening to someone speaking or speaking is an innate thing you know when someone is doing a good job and you know when someone is doing a bad job even if you have had no training at all as a listener or an, an audience member listening to someone speak but then in the training that you've just talked about it can be difficult to know exactly how to train those things like pitch and tempo and pacing and all the other elements that make a great speech. We have a lot of people come on our podcasts and we try and help them bring their message to life through the way in which they use their voice and they change their pitch. And I think you talk about a hot chocolate voice. What kind of few techniques or tips could we give people as well as ourselves to sort of on a daily basis practice these things to become more effective when we speak to people? Well, breath is very important and adopting a breathing practice is a really good start. Posture is also extremely important because if you compress your vocal cords, which I'm doing now by putting my head back or, or you stretch them by putting your head forward, you know, that doesn't work very well. Your vocal cords need to be nice and relaxed and vertical. And then where you resonate from yeah. is not a given. So there are cultural things here. There are some cultures where the resonating is very much done in the head, the nose, the sinuses. There are lots of cavities in the body where we resonate from. Obviously, your voice comes from your vocal cords, but you resonate your body. And it is generally accepted, and there's research to back this up, that we treat as more authoritative, deeper voices. So that's why Margaret Thatcher had vocal coaching to lower her voice by a good tone, at least two semitones, because she felt that that sort of down here was rather more authoritative than her yeah. higher pitched voice that she started with. We certainly vote for politicians with deeper voices. The research has shown that true, other things being equal. If you want to deepen your voice, then think about resonating in the chest, which is a much larger cavity than the head. You know, if I go up into my head, it's a much lighter voice and I'm in my throat pretty much. Now I can get into my nose and that's more a nasal tone. But if I go right down into my chest, suddenly you can hear the difference and there's a more authoritative feel. Now to practice that, you can put your hand on your sternum, the chest bone, and just practice, get a book, read it and practice trying to resonate so you can feel the buzz in your fingers. You can feel that sternum vibrating. And that's just practice. Now, I'm not saying everybody should speak down here and be artificial. It's not about that. It's about just exploring the capabilities you have. We all have different bodies, different vocal cords, different cavities in our bodies. So some people just have very high squeaky voices. You can still work to improve, to make the most of what you have. And 
doing that with a coach is a very, very good thing to do. You know, if you're seriously concerned about timbre, working with a coach would be a good thing to do. And there's a couple of things which I think people tend to fall into the habits of and which I would strongly suggest would be worth avoiding. One is repetitive prosody or repetitive intonation particularly. And the most common of those is high-rising terminal, where everything is said as if it were a question, even when it's not a question, but it's a statement. The voice going up at the end of every sentence. And that's not a very strong way to speak because there's a sort of elided, is that okay? It's querulous. It does not sound positive. And you wouldn't follow a great leader who said, now we're going to advance everyone. (laughs) if if that's all right with you well no no it isn't actually um it sounds so sure (laughs) yeah so it doesn't sound certain i mean the other name for that is australian questioning intonation but it's also apart from australian questioning intonation maybe it did come from australia it came also from the west coast of america repetition generally i mean just speaking about australians i love australians but they will tend to start every sentence with look <laughs> Those kind of vocal habits, little ticks, are things which we want to watch out for because they make it harder to listen to somebody who's indulging in those. If you start every single sentence with look, it's meaningless and slightly irritating eventually. And the other one is vocal fry, which is something which comes largely from the West Coast of America. It's very much speaking like this, it's a very croaky way of speaking. And it sounds sort of insouciant, but the research tends to indicate that vocal fry it doesn't go down well with listeners. When people are vocal frying, they're considered to be less employable or less intelligent. That's another one to avoid. I mean, the human voice, this instrument we've got, is a wonderful instrument. You know, and taking a really big, deep breath and being able to express that breath through your vocal cords and your resonating chambers, making the most of this is a wonderful thing. When you think of what the voice can do, from Pavarotti to Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan to whoever it might be that people love to hear singing, to the great orators who have stood up and given amazing speeches which have changed the world for good or for evil, of course, the voice is an immensely powerful thing. And everybody's can be. And that's the thing, is to become a master of the instrument that you've been given and make the most of it. In talking about all of those things, you mentioned a lot of effects which are unconscious, for example, voting for politicians that have deeper voices. Mm. And in a lot of the things that I've read or or listened to you speak about, you talk about kind of the unconsciousness of Mm. noise and how it affects our decision making just in general daily life, whether we're in a shopping center or anywhere else. Can you talk a little bit about how powerful sound is in ways that we wouldn't necessarily think about because it's just kind of unconsciously changing our habits and, and our ways of doing anything? Absolutely. Well, the sound agency, my company, is 20 years old this year and was one of the first companies to embrace the idea that sound matters for business. Started by asking the question, how does your brand sound? Which is something that many brands still don't have an answer to. You know, they have a brand book, which is a great big thick Bible. And I say to the marketing director, lovely brand book, how many pages are about sound? None. None. What's going on? Sound powerfully affects how we feel, our bodies, you know, our physiology, apart from anything else, and how well we can think and what we think and what we do, how long we stay in a place, even what we buy. And I'll give you a great example of that last one. 
there was a study some years ago done by a guy called Adrian North, who's now in Australia as well, but I knew him when he was in the UK and Professor Adrian North with some colleagues. They did a study in a supermarket with two gondola ends selling wine, one French wine, one German wine, and they were visually identical, nothing between them. And all they did was to alternate a music condition. I think I actually have the music here. So on day one, you had a little bit of this. And on day two, you had a little bit of that. That's what was going around day and day out for days and days and days. What happened on the French music days? French wine outsold German wine by five bottles to one, which may not be surprising because it does tend to sell more in the world. But... On the German music days, German wine outsold French wine by two bottles to one. Now, that is a massive shift in purchasing. And the interesting thing was, when asked, the vast majority of the shoppers hadn't even noticed the music. So this wasn't, ah, German music, therefore I should buy some German wine. It doesn't work like that. It was unconscious response to a sound condition that wasn't even noticed. Now, that's how powerfully sound can affect what people do. And most organizations go through their existence making a lot of noise, which is undermining all the millions or billions or even thousands for a smaller organization they spend on how they look. They get obsessed about how they look. How does a shop look? How does our branding look? How's our marketing looking? Our logo, the colors, the fonts, all that kind of stuff. Well, it's all very important. But if you undermine it with inappropriate, incongruent, ineffective sound that's just noise, then you're ripping the heart out of all of that good work, unfortunately, because we experience the world in five senses, not just one. There's a very healthy fragrance marketing industry for the same reason. So the thing is, if you line the messaging up, you get something called super additivity. And this has come out of science that's been done in the last few years, largely by another guy I know quite well, Professor Charles Spence at Oxford University, who runs a lab there where they're looking at cross-modalities, these are called, the way that the senses affect one another. Yep. So he has proven, for example, that loud noise reduces our ability to taste sugar and salt. Wow. So we don't taste our food so well in a loud restaurant. Restauranters, please take note. Yeah. <laughs> noise is not the same as bars. And if you care about your food, then you want to reduce the noise in the place so that we're not yelling at our dinner partner from a foot away because all the surfaces are hard and there's an open plan kitchen and there's music on and the noise is 90 decibels or something. It's really important, therefore, that you line everything up. And super additivity is when you do line them up, it's a multiplier effect. It's not one plus one is two. One plus one can be five or 10 if all the senses are pointing in the same direction. So that's what the sound agency does. And that's amazing to me. It's part of this not listening, which is the broader conversation that we're having. But organizations, as I said, right back at the beginning, organizational listening is abject. And that means they're not listening to the places their people work in. You know, mm -hmm. noise is the number one problem in modern offices, open plan offices particularly. They're not listening to the spaces they create for their customers, which are designed by architects who spend no time at all training on noise. And all they're interested in is how things look. So you get swanky 
shops, for example, all covered in glass and metal and wood you might get if you're lucky. No soft surfaces at all because they're very uncool these days. So the reverberation time is terrible. The noise is all bouncing around in the place. It's a cacophony and people leave. They may not know that's why they're leaving, but they'll feel uncomfortable. They'll feel tired. They'll feel stressed. They'll feel unapproachable and they will go much sooner than they would otherwise. And we did a test some years ago in Oxford Street. There was a chemist, bizarrely, which was playing the most appalling music through a terrible sound system. It sounded distorted. It was noisy. And we watched three out of five people walk into the shop and turn around on the threshold and walk out again. When the staff wouldn't even have known, they were losing 60% of their custom. But that's what can happen if you're making inappropriate, undesigned, unintentional noise that really has a bad effect on people. So that's what the sound agency is all about. And from sonic logos right through to what we specialize in, which is generative soundscapes, largely using nature sound, not music, which are designed for retail spaces and hospitality spaces to make people feel more comfortable, to give them a connection with nature very often and to help them to stay longer because any retailer knows that dwell time is sell time, I think is their phrase. You know, people stay longer, we tend to spend more money. And that's fine. To me, it's win-win. We're making spaces more comfortable to be in. Well, that's good for the people who are coming into them. And if they then spend more money, it's an advantage to the space owner as well. I'm fascinated by the way in which the world is architected and hinders productivity. You mentioned there that open plan offices are bad. I think in your talk, you say that they reduce productivity by 67% or yeah. you're as one third as effective in an open plan office than you would be in a, an office with walls. But the world seems to be trending towards open plan everything. Mm. And so I wonder how much productivity or GDP we've lost simply by building cities and offices and buildings in a way which makes all these unconscious decisions that affect us and ultimately lowers the efficiency at which we work. The answer is it's astronomical amounts. And there are estimates now of the cost of noise to Western societies, to the UK and the US, which are in the region of 3% of GDP, which is billions and billions and billions a year. That's absolutely huge. That's in terms of health impacts. Noise stops people from sleeping at night. It also stops people from sleeping in hospitals, which are some of the noisiest places in the world. They're running at 12 times the recommended level of noise, most hospitals. So noise has devastating health effects right up to killing people. Sudden noise can cause heart attacks. But the accumulation of noise, even in a modern classroom, 65 decibels is completely typical. Um, that's you know research-based. And that's the level at which constant exposure over a period of time increases your risk of heart attack or stroke. So teachers may well be shortening their lives by working in these environments. It's quite possibly the case that many other workers are doing the same because 65 dB is not that unusual. And of course, yes, offices. I did a BBC Radio 4 program a few years ago called The Curse of Open Plan where I was making the point quite strongly that we need to think very carefully about the different types of working. You know, I was talking with Professor Jeremy Myerson on that program, and he distinguishes collaboration, one form of working, from concentration. And also there's a kind of decompression 
there's a kind of Zen style of working where you just need to not work for a while. You need to decompress and take a bit of time. And I would also add communication. Different styles of working, and it's got a bit better because there are modern trends such as activity-based working, where the idea is you set an office up with different spaces and people move to the right space for the work they're trying to do. That's all very well. It's like the idea of hot desking. And then I come in and say, that's my hot desk you're sitting in. People take a long time to let go of possessiveness, the comfort of being in a particular place. We need to take a much more holistic view about this. And of course, there's also the whole aspect of neurodiversity, which is very important these days. And people are starting to realize there are a very large number of people in any given office population who may be neurodiverse. They might be on the spectrum. They might have other things going on. I mean, hearing issues like hyperacusis, where you're very sensitive to loud sounds or particular sounds. All of these things need to be taken into account so we can create environments where people can find a place to be the most productive they can possibly be. And that's really the way around it needs to be, rather than a one-size-fits-all, open plan, the whole place. Because, you know, you run a risk of putting your finance team next to, I don't know, a creative team and an ad agency who have a boombox on and like leaping (laughs) about the place. And the finance people are going berserk because they're trying to prepare the accounts or whatever. That doesn't work. We have to think about these kind of interchanges, the noise output and the noise tolerance of the different people and also the different work that they may be doing through the day because it's not homogeneous. It's not one size fits all. Sometimes I might need a really quiet working space and that's traditionally very undersupplied. You look at the Leesman index of the things that people care about in offices, hygiene factors, the environmental factors, and the least satisfied and most important ones, noise and quiet working space. Those always, always are top of the list, and they have been for years. And yet architects and the managers of the organizations that are taking on the spaces just seem to be continually ignoring this, perhaps because they're sitting in their own offices and they don't perceive the problem that the people outside are (laughs) facing. Yeah, so it is a big issue. And the other piece of our modern world is headphones. Anywhere you go, you see people walking around probably with headphones in, either Mm. talking to someone or listening to something. And obviously, in our industry, podcasting is hugely important. But how do you perceive them from your perspective of listening and speaking and whether they're beneficial or detrimental to our psyche? Well, like so many things, they're both, depending on how you use them. I mean, I love headphones. And if you care about quality sound and you're on a budget, it's much easier to get brilliant sound through a pair of headphones than it is to buy a system with loudspeakers and to sound that it's probably about eight times more expensive to do that with a component yeah. system in a room. So as long as you're not trying to share the sound with anybody else, headphones are fantastic. You should always get the best headphones you can possibly afford because with cheap headphones, the tendency is always to turn them up. I do have a big concern about earbud, about in-ear headphones, because a lot of the lower market ones tend not to be very noise isolating, and they certainly don't do active noise compensation, which means that you can hear what's going on around you. Again, the tendency is to turn the sound up. And if you're next to anybody and you can hear that sort of 
best noise coming from their headphones, they're destroying their hearing. It's too loud. A rule of thumb, if you can't hear somebody talking to you while you're listening to headphones, then it's probably too loud. And certainly, I mean, I'm not saying never listen loud on headphones, but really limit it. Anything over 85, generally, you're, you're talking about an hour max in a day. Once you get to 100, you're talking about just a few minutes. And that, unfortunately, is the level which a lot of people, a lot of younger people are pouring into their ears for hours. And that's devastating to the tiny hairs in your cochlea. So really good headphones. There are lots of great ones around now. Again, get the best you possibly can and really invest because otherwise what you're doing is damaging something which is essential for your life skills. It's your hearing and that's precious. So it really is worth investing enough. So headphones, you know, fantastic things. I mean, the research says a lot of people use headphones now in order to reclaim control of their sonic environment and not be disturbed by messaging from outside, by people, by the noise of civilization, which is unfortunately, most of the sound around us is unpleasant and it's accidental and it's because nobody's listening and we're all just making it. It's like swimming through fetid water. Unfortunately, that is the case. And if you can protect yourself, you do. But please, with moderation, be very, very careful about the level and the tendency to keep turning the volume up because you habituate to a volume and then you think, oh, it doesn't sound as good as it did. I'll just turn it up a bit. That's the old frog in a pan of boiling water syndrome. So uh, it's important to be conscious. And that's really the big picture on all of this is consciousness. Conscious that listening is important, that sound is a whole dimension of existence that we tend to ignore. And it's wonderful when you draw back the curtain and open up this whole new territory of active listening to everything around you. Wow, you know, there are so many delights to save. And there'll be a bunch of things where you're, you're in rooms going, I, I never noticed that buzz. It's been going on for years. Is that yeah. doing me any good? No, it's not. So let's change it. So, I mean, that's something I recommend to anybody to do is go through your whole house, every room, enter it, close your eyes and listen and just ask, is this the best soundscape I could possibly have in this room for what I want to do here? And that's quite revelatory sometimes. What a wonderful closing thought. One other thing I might just quickly ask is if you can think of any very powerful communicators that I could refer people to to go and watch tapes of if they want to practice. I guess there are lots of famous ones. Margaret Thatcher is probably a good example. Yes, Martin Luther King, obviously. In terms of stage performance, people like Tony Robbins, you can take a look at the way they work and how powerful they are. Brian Stevenson, who gave an amazing TED talk about the American prison system. TED is a great place to look, of course. Mm. And just looking at the most watched TED talks of all time, I mean, Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, Ken Robinson, of course. I adore that talk. Had the pleasure of meeting him before he died. What a lovely man. TED is a great place to point people to and just go for the most viewed TED Talks of all time. And most of those will be really good speakers yeah. and with plenty to learn from the way that they're doing it. It's not all about performance in TED. I remember, you know, I asked Chris about that years ago, which was more important, content or delivery. And he said, definitely content, because you'll bear with somebody who's 
delivering incredibly earth-shattering content in a boring way. But if somebody's talking nonsense and delivering it brilliantly, it's just irritating. I often wonder about the converse of that. How many ideas are lost to history because the communication wasn't right? They might be brilliant academically, but they couldn't put their thoughts or their ideas into either words or into a speech. I think you're right there. It is really important. I mean, it's essential to be able to communicate clearly in every walk of life from personal relationships, family, colleagues at work to inspiring change. It is unfortunately the case that some of the most inspiring people have been evil as well. That continues to be true. Good communicators, you know, powerful people who come across as authoritative. And it's sadly the case still in this world that many people would prefer to follow an authoritative, evil person than a rambling, weak, but well-meaning person. Goes to your point about how powerful communication is. And if you can master that, then obviously you can use it to huge power, both good and bad. Yeah. And it's also worth pointing people at the old body of knowledge, which is largely lost of rhetoric Mm -hmm. from Greece, because there's a lot of great wisdom in the study of rhetoric and the tools and techniques they used, which are still used by people today. You know, the rule of three and alliteration and all these kinds of techniques, which lots and lots of people have used to their benefit. Do you think that was the golden age of speaking? Because that was the medium through which ideas flowed primarily at the time. Well, they certainly revered oratory and that's disappeared from politics now. There was a time probably up until the late 60s in the UK when politicians would stand up, grandees would stand up and people would come to listen to them because they were so good. They might be reading, some of them did, but the great ones didn't. I think the last one was probably Tony Benn in the 60s, who many people disagreed with, but was brilliant. And now, of course, it's just shouting at each other and sound bites and opinions and insults and so forth, which is very sad. Politics is not on a foundation of oratory anymore. It's not on a foundation of reasoned argument. It's about posturing, largely. So you're right. I think we've lost a lot there. Maybe we can reclaim it. The way technology is going and the way voice is about to make a huge comeback and okay, there's deep fakes and there's the dark side of all of that. But with AI, we are moving into a world where we'll be speaking to devices instead of typing and reading. Voice interface is going to be the prime way. It's going to be more like Jarvis from Iron Man, and that's the way we will be behaving. But then the big question is, who's going to own Jarvis? And the bigger question, of course, is, is Jarvis, if he becomes more intelligent than we are, is he going to tolerate our existence at all? So that's another question. Do you Um, think it would just be because it's easier to speak to something rather than write to something, which is why speech will proliferate? Yeah, because if you've got to write, you've got to stop doing everything else, haven't you? Whereas I could speak to Jarvis and book a trip abroad and restaurants and things like that while I'm in the bath or uh, doing the ironing or doing anything else, really. It's much more convenient and uh, a much simpler way to operate. Within my lifetime, I would really hope that we move away from this whole eternal filling in of credit card details and authorizations and codes and all that nonsense that we have to put up with. And it'll all be on the voice and on some sort of watermarking, which Mm -hmm. allows us to be authoritatively ourselves. So that'll be a lot easier. Which will make these ideas all the more prominent. Yeah, hopefully.
Julian, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your research with us today and also in all of your talks you've done. Uh, I'd encourage everyone to go and watch all your five TED Talks. I think there's five? Five, yes. And, yeah, five. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dom. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. Matt, speaking and listening, he knew they were so important. Yes, this was a really interesting one because I'd seen Julian's TED Talk. And I assumed we were going down the path of strong voice, public speaking, emphasizing pauses when you're giving a speech and how to be really powerful with the voice. And we actually went in a completely different direction there, which at first I was like, okay, I'm not so sure that I care as much about this. He actually had me thinking about a ton of different things when it comes to sound and listening and even conversation as a whole. So I was pleasantly surprised It was like completely separate from my expectations. Yeah, I'll be honest. I could have probably done with a few extra really tactical pieces in the conversation. But as you say, like it just really makes you think about the environment you live in and the places that you interact with and how most of the time you don't take any notice or you don't think about sound at all in the ways that it's pushing you and nudging you into different decisions that you make. And also just like the very basic concept that we teach writing, but we don't teach speaking or listening. Yeah, speaking and listening is the thing that we do most of. If we want someone to do something, we have to most of the time talk to them about it. And generally, the way you use your voice and the way you construct an argument is so hugely fundamental to everything we do. But we assume as a two-year-old, you've learned it. And after that, you don't need to go and revisit that skill. So easy to gloss over. And yeah, there were some like higher level themes which had me thinking a lot. And one of them right off the bat was the difference between speaking and having an in-person conversation or even a Zoom conversation versus everything that's happening online now. And it just made me think about the realities of remote work, which I think remote work has a lot of benefits. But the reality is, it's really tough on culture. And the ambiguity in text, some people are absolutely horrible at technological communications and leave you with very, very little. It feels just entirely transactional. And whether that's intended or not, that's how it's interpreted. And I think like, That was something that made me think about it on a few different layers. I really zeroed in on his points about listening and not so much about me because my mom was (laughs) in academic. So she taught us very early on the concept of eye contact and showing some reaction to when someone's speaking and trying to really engage with them. And that's going to make them feel more comfortable. And the reality is working, especially early on in my early years on a trading floor, People want to do anything but listen to. It is how quickly can you get your message across? And you train yourself to do that. But what it ends up creating is a lot of transactional relationships. And I've gotten to the point now where there's a lot of people where when I can tell they're not listening or they're not interested, I just don't share that much. And it's created this interesting like bifurcation in terms of a lot of my professional relationships where half the people have no idea what's going on because they show no interest in what's going on. And then the other side, it's like there is this listening and this engagement and there's this reaction. And it was just like, whoa, I didn't really appreciate how much all these things were like actually impacting me subconsciously. Kind of interesting to have those takeaways just from listening to him talk about all the different dynamics going on there. Yeah, we've talked about remote work in the past. And I think those links with another point that you made and our feeling or my feeling in particular with remote work is that your highs are really high, your lows are quite low, and you go through a very roller coaster journey by yourself in your office at home. And then when you speak to someone, even over Zoom, it's kind of a bit more helpful. But it's definitely in an office, I found myself to be much more sort of at a level with Zoom. And this has been talked about a lot. 
you can never make eye contact with someone properly because you're always looking at their picture rather than the camera. And, you know, until someone fixes that, and I know there are people working on it, like it becomes really tough to really engage with someone. There are some other body language cues that you can definitely take and like know whether someone is engaged in what you have to say or not. Fascinating, that stuff. And even his TED talk, the one that really blew up, is like an interesting backstory behind it. So that was the fifth one he did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so it was the last one he did. And from the time that he actually did it, it was a year before they released it. I haven't heard why that's the case. But it's kind of like, again, an interesting nugget behind people's successes. If you've watched any of his TED Talks, you've likely watched that one. But he had a ton of prep many years before that, kind of honing his TED speaking or just general public speaking now. And then he, for a long time, didn't know whether it was ever going to get published. And obviously, when it did, it really resonated with the broader world and kind of his message within it. And if anyone wants to, he has a really excellent on his website, he breaks down that talk with someone else. It's like an hour long and they go through play by play before he goes on stage in terms of like a first impression. What are you wearing? Are you pitching at the right level? The very first sentence, he talks about a few different like really powerful speeches through history. And the first sentence is generally a very, very short sentence and it kind of has a rhythm to it. And he mimics that rhythm and then he goes through really like blow by blow. And it's kind of really interesting if you want to get into the real nitty nitty gritty of how to do a great speech. Yeah, that I think came across. He has a very powerful speech and something that I noticed that I don't know that this translates across other speakers as well is when you speed him up, if you put him on two times in your podcast player, even 2.5, you can still understand him exactly what he's saying. I thought that was kind of interesting because it definitely differs from others who might come across as good speakers. But when you speed them up, they're much more difficult to understand. And I don't know exactly what that has to do with probably something around enunciation. But that was pretty interesting. And he did get somewhat tactical and mentioning some of the things in the conversation with you. And something that triggered a thought with me was little noises to show some type of reciprocal conversation happening. And I can distinctly remember with Bill Simmons, who's been podcasting for a while now, but I think pretty much anybody would say he was not a natural at podcasting and TV. He didn't have a traditional voice for it. But one of the things he started doing, I, I want to say this is like four or five years in, was making this noise in the middle of somebody saying something where he would just go, hmm, hmm, <laughs> this agreement. And that could be distracting and annoying. And you do it in normal conversations. But it was so memorable. And I was always saying to myself, somebody must have coached him to do this just to show some type of reaction. It made me laugh because there's very few things that you can do when you're on some type of video or somebody's giving a long monologue, it's like, how do you react? And the traditional stuff is just the nodding, like he was saying, you know, what you were doing. But it's pretty neat. And that story about the TED Talk, that's pretty interesting. I wonder how many things out there exist like that where they were created well before they became hits. That's kind of neat to think about. Definitely. People don't know. We always try to record separate audio files for our recordings and this goes across kind of all the podcasts we do so that you can try and like you can say oh yes and not along and make some noises and then in the editing you can just strip out that track and so it doesn't sound like it's annoying if you're listening to it as a third party but if you're in the conversation it's useful to kind of make sure that the person you're speaking to knows that you're kind of engaged and understanding what they're talking about but funnily enough for this conversation and my audio was a bit off because he recorded it on his side and he didn't have dual tracks and so I was trying to strip out the bits where I was saying yes or other weird noises that I was making. Why did he record? Was it because he wanted to play that music in the middle? 
I honestly don't know. His assistant said that he always records all of his Zoom sessions. And I was asking about dual tracks, but we never actually got an answer before we went live. I thought I was recording, but I wasn't. And so we used his audio. I don't know whether he... It might be to his point of like practice and listening back to tapes and seeing that I do a good job. Yeah, I assume that's the reason. Although maybe we could record it next time because he made himself sound a lot better than you. Maybe that's his tactic with the quality of... Yeah, yeah. But going back to something you said, like that was the impetus for me to have this conversation. I'm not very good at talking. And this podcast has really highlighted it to me when I listen back. And I know you always think you sound worse than other people think you sound. But I speak too quickly. I'm well aware of that. And I also, to his point, don't speak from my chest. I'm trying different ways to um, sort both of those problems out. And it's definitely a work in progress. I'm with you. The throat speaker, when he describes that in his TED Talk, I was like, wow, that is me. And for anybody that's listened to this podcast, they've heard that scribe ad. And I don't think there's a better ad for somebody who's a throat speaker than that. And my sister is a speech pathologist. So I've gotten a lot of these interesting lessons over the years. And when she listened to me, she said, you know, you got to make sure you look out for your vocal cords. So I think that was her, <laughs> her telling me that I am a throat speaker. But it was interesting to hear. Again, I would point everybody to that TED Talk just because it's a little bit eye-opening and you can think about yourself in that same context. I agree with you in terms of the fast speech. I think it's very common now. And I think a lot of it has to do with people not listening. So you speed up your speech pattern to get points across. Also, I found that many people use fast speech, especially in the East Coast or in New York City, as a way to show intelligence, which I think that's like the first lesson I learned in the professional workforce is everybody comes in you're right out of school and you see these people and they're talking so fast and you're like, wow, they are so smart. But those people are often the ones that are just full of BS and they're just saying things that don't actually make sense. So like the first step on the ladder of awareness and moving up the professional sphere and feeling more comfortable is really realizing all the people that are speaking insanely fast and throwing random things out there and yada, yada, yada. They're just faking it and doing it through the strategy of fast speech and hoping you can't keep up. All bullshit. The fact that the way we our architecture works against us in terms of productivity is wild to me. He cites a study that open plan offices are a third of as effective as ones that have got walls in and where people can be in their quiet solitude. Every office I've ever been to is an open plan office. It's crazy to me that those two things are true because people talk about collaboration, but I'm sure the productivity losses way outweigh any collaboration gains you may try and get as an office. And then like hospitals being that multiple, louder than they should be. You're trying to heal people, but the noise is just completely working against you. I love those things about like just unconscious effects or biases. Yeah, I despise open plan offices. And I think Bell Labs talked about they had actual offices for their employees and collaboration was supposed to happen in the hallways. It's not like you don't have communal areas. If you have somewhere where you can get the water cooler area, that's where collaboration can often happen. And it really did kill productivity because somebody is taking a break and gossiping and it's likely to pull other people in. And it's so hard to distract yourself from that. So it's like, yeah, headphones help, but they really don't solve it. And there's so many subconscious things that you don't even appreciate. I think Tom Morgan writes a lot on Twitter and writes a lot about subconscious things, often talks about, you don't realize you're listening. But if you're in the middle of a restaurant, there's a million people talking, and somebody says your name, you're all of a sudden 
going to be aware of that. And it's true. Like subconsciously, you're listening and you don't know what type of impact that has on you. And you just always have to wonder, like, what are the reasons for these things to exist? And it's like a lot of times it's just driven by dollars. And then the narrative is formed around it. And even me, like I work outside now because even inside, yes, I can remove myself from activity, but I can't be that removed. I think it follows on nicely as well from Neil's conversation last week. A lot of what he talked about was good communication. I know they work remotely as a team. It's just so important to check in with people and just make sure you're both on the same page, particularly if you've been talking over Slack or email for a long time. Let's go and see what's going on, which brings up another point, which you've talked about a lot in the past. I think Sam Hinkey first talked about this, of building an API into someone's brain, understanding the way in which their brain works. How do they need to receive a message rather than like, how would I want to present it? actually working backwards from the person you're speaking to. And obviously that isn't challenging if you don't know that person very well, but when you get to know them. I remember doing lots of personality tests at work and then you start thinking, okay, that person values numbers or feelings more than they do other things and that you poke a ton of holes in those kind of tests. But ultimately they help when you're kind of constructing an argument and thinking, okay, I want to get this past that person. How do I need to present it? And what do I need to say in a way that actually resonates with them? Yeah, the API thing is interesting. Like You just saying that now makes me think... Does that revolve around a lot of transactional relationships? Should you have to think that hard about landing whatever communication you have? And I don't know. Thinking about it now, it's certainly beneficial to understand how certain people think and how certain people react to things. But when you have to think that hard about getting your point across with certain people, it feels like very unnatural. This fewer, deeper relationships, I think, is a great goal to have. Often in business, you're working in a big company most of the time. It's like you don't have time to build this bond with someone over many months before asking them to do something. You tend to get a thrust in a room. You met the person a few times before and it's like, we need to work together. So let's do this. 100% fair. Yeah. The reality is a lot of things do have to be transactional and it's about lowering the transactional aspects of it over time and creating more of a relationship if that's possible. But no, that's a very fair point. Yeah. A lot of interesting things to think about from this. Again, at first I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to hear about this stuff. I want to hear more about the voice and powerful speaking. But then the further he went, I was finding myself thinking really deeply about those points he was making and saying, "Eh, there's something here. So a little bit of a different flavor. And I liked it. Well, let's say people made it through the first 10 minutes. That will be crucial. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, awesome, Dom. Another great one. Thanks for filling in for me while I was out and putting up such strong numbers. And I hope that I don't bring down the team when I come back. You wait. See you next week. All right.